0: But you communists would introduce community of women, screams the bourgeoisie in chorus. The bourgeois sees his wife a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common, and naturally can come to no other conclusion that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. He has not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. For the rest, nothing is more ridiculous than the virtuous indignation of our bourgeois at the community of women which they pretend is to be openly and officially established by the communists. The communists have no need to introduce community of women It has existed almost from time immemorial. Our bourgeois, not content with having wives and daughters of their proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives. Bourgeois marriage is, in reality, a system of wives in common, and thus, at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is that they desire to introduce in substitution for a hypocritically concealed and openly legalized community of women for the rest it is self-evident that the abolition of the present system of production must bring with it the abolition of the community of women springing from that system i.e. of prostitution, both public and private.
1: Wow, thank you, Marks. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: um, you sounded like an Ayn Rand character for a little bit there.
3: <laughs> I did my best. I did my best. It was to, really great. Uh, I'm proud of you. Yeah, thank you. Communist, <laughs> communist Iron Rand. It's like the only Ayn Rand I would read.
1: Welcome to yet another episode of Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast where men can't interrupt us. On today's episode, we have Laura, Ambria,
3: Kellen, and Lindsay. It's extra awesome that men can't interrupt us on today's episode because I feel like when talking about Marx, it's uh it's pretty common. Okay, so speaking of which, today we're talking about feminism and Marx. Uh, we'll be pulling quotes from Marx himself and also Marxist feminist scholars. And talking about them. Please note from the beginning that Marx has a huge anthology of work. Much of which is too Hegelian to even get through. So we'll be focusing on some quintessential passages. As well as analysis from other folks who we think are great. And just don't add us. You know? Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot to critique of Marx in the way of feminism, racism, and colonialism. But most socialists come from a Marxist, Marxist framework, and having a Marxist framework is extremely helpful for analyzing a lot of today's issues and issues people have faced throughout pretty much all of time. And as socialists, it's pretty important for us to have an understanding of the class struggle and historical materialism. Mm-hmm. So, we'll be unpacking (laughs) We'll be unpacking Marxism from a feminist perspective So, we started with that really dope uh, quote from the Communist Manifesto
4: Read by Marx himself, the only man who will ever be on our podcast (laughs) I don't know if y'all knew that Marx is British,
3: kind of British or like an old-timey person in a movie.
1: <laughs> One of those news reporters from the 40s. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like here Marx essentially suggests that the bourgeois class only think of women in terms of how they support the process of capitalism. And if we were to live under communism, women would enter society in a truly equitable way instead of some like bullshit tokenism or still dealing with the wage gap or no reproductive care or blah 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 but i wanted to start with like what do y'all think of the community of women what do you think we're talking about here
1: i think he says something about the prostitution both public and private and that seems to suggest like the treatment of women as property in marriage as well as in lots of other ways like as in sex work as well and i think that, I don't know, I get the sense that that's what we're talking a little bit when we talk about the community of women. Mm. Like, sharing women communally. Ugh. I ugh.
2: It's just, I don't know, that take makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know, just, it seems kind of dehumanizing, almost, that women are something to be shared.
1: Although, to be clear, I think what Marx is, like, criticizing that um, accusation that's being made of communists, that they want to, you know, share their women Mm -hmm. Uh, with each other and share them communally. And I think he's pushing back on the idea that a community of women is something that could be owned by anyone.
2: All right. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I really did struggle with this a lot. So if anybody has another take, I'm down to hear it.
3: (laughs) Well, for me, it's interesting because like in the ideal in my mind, I'm like, oh, community of women. It's just like a bunch of women like having each other's backs and being super supportive. And like, that's the backbone of society, but also like um, they have power in this circumstance is kind of how I think of it. But he also talks about it in terms of prostitution, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I don't know if he means and, because Marx is a shyster. If you read any of Marx, it's like half of the stuff he says is like sarcastic like <laughs> stuff where he's like making fun of some capitalist douchebag. And he'll like be like, oh, Mr. Mr. Jason or whatever the fuck he does in one part of Capital. But anyway, he <laughs> so part of this is like him kind of like speaking tongue in cheek. And so but so I could see prostitution meaning two different things, one meaning actual sexualized prostitution or just the idea that women being sold in the way that they are for their labor under capitalism is prostitution, like how women's labor is Inherently prostitution because of the unwaged labor that exists in homes. So I feel like it could go either way, and like this idea of a community of women is like pushing back on that.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, and that's also why, like you know, if there's a community of women, you know, under the communistic framework, um, it would mean that they enter public life, mm. mm-hmm. as you said earlier.
3: Totally.
2: I know it says i mean he said the communists have no need to introduce community of women and has existed almost from time immemorial um so i mean the community is there i just think that it is maybe that it has been relegated to you know private sectors or in terms of prostitution it's kind of it is generally public or it's you know more public than the home but it is overlooked and it is relatively secret for something that's that's public um something that's kind of relegated to the shadows um and so i think that 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 your take ambria makes sense that it would be that a community of women would be less private and less kind of obscured and shadow and much more public and
4: i think you know, one thing that we things. we've like talked about amongst ourselves i don't think on the podcast so much but um is the ways that networks of women function to keep women safe. So Mm -hmm. um, something that comes to mind is uh, the way that I think a lot of women in our day-to-day lives, whether it's in the workplace, um, you know, for me and and like within the department that I'm working on, uh, working in, um, you know, in, even unfortunately in spaces on the left, there aren't, the systems don't exist to serve women or to protect them in so many ways. You know, like uh, I work a lot with survivors of campus sexual assault and rape, and the system is set up in, in a way to protect the people who commit those crimes. And so what, mm-hmm. what, do, what do we do about that as women? The answer is that we develop networks and communicate sort of not out in the open, but under the cover of you know private conversations, whispers like in hallways about you know who isn't safe, like who should you watch your drink around?
0: Um, don't
4: get a al- don't be alone with the boss, that kind of thing. And that the the power that men hold in so many different areas of our society and the desire to hold on to that power and reinforce that power means that for a lot of these kinds of conversations, we do form communities of women, but we do it in a way that is secretive, sort of under, like you said, Lindsay, under the cover of darkness or whatever. Um, And I think that one way we can think about this passage from Marx is the idea that when you have these hierarchies in society, class hierarchies, but also hierarchies of gender are broken down, then... Women can come out of the shadows with their accusations and be taken seriously um, when they talk about sexual violence or domestic abuse, mistreatment of any kind, really, by men.
3: I think that also gets to some of the societal labor that women do for each other, which we'll be talking about a lot more later. Um, But I think it's worth mentioning that like the fact that the culture is still that women need to protect themselves and women need to watch out when they're alone with their bosses and women need to like have each other's back in these ways instead of from a very young age teaching men not to behave in these fucking terrible and don't be a scary ways. right so we'll definitely you know talk about that more later in the show too but back to Marx you know Marx and his goodness uh at least for now we'll talk about some shit that Marx is like what um <laughs> so Marx was hopeful that capitalism would lay the groundwork for a communistic society um, in which there exists, quote, a new economic foundation for a higher form of the family and of relations between the sexes, um, and that's in capital. And um, if you listen to our first episode, which you should, yeah. um, we noted or we talked a lot about a woman named Silvia Federici, and she says that Marx could have never presumed Uh, that capitalism paves the way for human liberation through communism if he had looked at history from the viewpoint of women. And I think this is a contention that there is with Marx from a feminist Marx perspective.
1: Um, I'm still grappling with this argument of hers uh, because, you know, it's not like Marx considers capitalism a stepping stone because it's a great system. Although, obviously, he did believe that there were certain things about it that enabled that step to happen. In his framework, it's capitalism's unique and ever-expanding exploitation of workers, so bad thing, um, that leads to the development of class consciousness. So, like we say in the first episode, like you just said, uh, Federici is really challenging more than Marx's stance on women. Um, she's challenging the ways he says the worker might actually come to realize their own exploit- ex- exploitation. Exploitation. Um, she argues that the worker was already aware of this at the implementation of capitalism, uh, and that in fact, capitalism over time made workers less aware of their exploitation than they were mm. at its beginnings. Mm. Um, but many thinkers have kind of talked about the reasons that people oppressed by capitalism and all the other power dynamics that prop up capitalism, why those people are in a special position to gain understanding. Um, Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks comes to mind. Paulo mm-hmm. Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, W. E. B. Du Bois. All of these thinkers talked about how those who are oppressed understand both themselves and their oppressors in the way that the oppressor does not, or in a way, but the oppressor doesn't. And because of that, they have the opportunity to have a more complete picture of the world. Um, Freire talks about how this can lead to adopting the oppressor's mentality and maybe becoming an oppressor yourself or just believing, you know, that that system is something that makes sense. Um, but he also says at the same time, if people begin to learn about the world, recognize, you know, it's a human creation. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a natural order. It can be changed. Mm -hmm. Um, They start to recognize their potential power to be part of that. um, And that part is being denied to them by oppressors. And then they're, you know, therefore in a unique position to attempt to achieve justice. And um, even Hegel talks about this in something called the slave master dialectic, uh, kind of. He says that because the person in power comes to rely upon the servant to fulfill his needs, the servant comes to understand both himself and the master in a way that is not reciprocal. Um, so that cuts the master off from a part of his own life and a a part of the broader reality. Um, And I didn't name any women uh, because I'm a bad feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I'm still dealing with Federici's challenge in light of all that. Um, We often say that only people of color really know what it means to be oppressed by racial systems. You know, only women can really understand sexism and fight it. Um, And I think that's clear to us in a lot of ways. You know, Franz Fanon, for example who I just mentioned, a brilliant person, taught us so much about race and colonialism, but he still failed to recognize many things about the oppression of women. Um, I think as Marxists, we're hopeful that workers can come to recognize their exploitation and their power to overcome it. But I think we're still mulling over how exactly that happens. I'm sorry that's really long.
3: (laughs) No, it's super helpful. I think, I, I mean, at least I think Federici's main argument, too, is like she saw that historically under feudalism women had more access to each other Mm. and that they maybe could have seen the isolation that capitalism brought in a way that Marx maybe couldn't. Mm.
1: That's a great point. Mm
3: -hmm. Throughout Capital Marx details uh, the horrors mainly of the factory system because that's kind of his whole thing—that's <laughs> where he like develops the idea of the working classes from mm-hmm. either the field or the factory, but mostly the factory. And so he details the different horrors of a factory system, and including parents literally selling their children um, into what he calls wage slavery in order to deal with their financial precarity. And he talks—he he specifically calls a parent a slave dealer um when they do this and he makes a comparison between children's labor and the quote negro slaves that were formerly to be read in advertisements in american journals so he uh, for me it feels like slightly problematic that he kind of goes into that and uh I know Callan had some stuff she wanted to say on that.
4: Well, I spend my days literally uh, reading the uh, inquiries for slaves that were formerly to be read among the advertisements in American journals. So I'm very familiar with this subject, but I think actually what's more, not more interesting, but more relevant here is the idea of wage slavery and the history of that term and sort of the, the context that it's important to to lock onto when we're talking about this. So obviously, wage slavery comes up in Marx's writings, but it also comes up organically, meaning before Marx was using it, in the mid-19th century American labor movement. And I don't know nearly as much about like the labor movements in Europe, um, but I would not be surprised if uh, English members of the English working class were using the term wage slavery as well during this period. Anyway, in the context that Marx is talking about of, you know, in in America, um, there's a sense in the north, the northern United States, that slavery is bad, um, even if most people aren't really that interested in doing very much about it. And as a side note, my dissertation is about these people uh, who we might think of as the sheet cakers of early America, but uh, (laughs) anyway, Northern laborers are aware of this, this general sentiment and they try to use it to their advantage by evoking the idea of wage slavery. In fact, I actually have in front of me right now a pamphlet published by laborers in Philadelphia in 1836 when Marx was just a teenager. Um, and I'm looking at it and they, they make comments about how, quote, the situation of the white slave is often more unfortunate than that of the black. Um, Mm -hmm. and what injustice is discoverable in the conduct of the Southern planter, which is also not found in the practices of the Northern farmer, this being sort of an industrial farmer. Um, Mm -hmm. they are both tyrants to the utmost of their abilities. They also make an interesting point they say that the slaveholder supposes himself bound in justice to support the blacks who are worn out in his service, meaning that um, slaveholders in the South, if you're, if slaves become too old to work, they're expected to, you know, feed them and keep, you know, giving them a place to sleep and live until they die, which is obviously not the case in northern oh, well. plantations. Yeah. So anyway, this idea of wage slavery was really popular and, um, and used popularly in, in the labor press in um, the northern states uh, in the 1830s and on through the rest of the 19th century. But there's a problem with making these kinds of claims. Besides the fact that saying, like, w- white wage slaves are even worse off than black slaves, you know, being really problematic on its face, southern slavery apologists actually pick up on this language and parrot it. Um, to make the argument that southern slavery isn't that bad, so you know the southern southern slavery, southern slavery apologists say things like, "Well, the northern capitalist doesn't care if his worker starves or is worked to death because he can easily hire another poor man or woman or child to do the same job." But since slaveholders are literally invested in the people who work their plantations, they do have an incentive to keep them healthy and to pay at least minimal attention to their well-being. And so, you know, this argument, probably, like, the idea, again, that that actually northern workers are worse off than southern slaves, that probably sounds ridiculous to us, but it was an argument that was used both by northern laborers (laughs) and by the southern slaveholders that wanted to get the northern bourgeoisie off their backs basically about the whole slavery deal. And so it bothers me a little bit that like these are the terms that Marx is using because he's a well-read guy. Like he knows the implications of what he's saying here and he's trying to shock his audience um, who generally will agree that slavery is bad just like the northern workers were doing. But I think that in using this kind of language, they really obscure how horrific slavery was. Um, it's definitely true that impoverished laborers in the North or, you know, in British or German factories, um, like slaves, were alienated from the product of their labor. But slaves themselves were considered property. And that difference seems to me to be just so important. So, yeah, there you go, guys.
3: For, for fuck's
1: sake. I, am. Um, yeah, it's funny you say, you know, it sounds preposterous preposterous to us that they might compare, you know, white workers in the north uh, to black slaves in the south and suggest that, you know, the white workers are worse off. But, I mean, we see this right now, even with the um, the whole narrative around the Irish were slaves and they were actually yeah. way worse off. Than slaves were. That is like super popular with slave apologists right now in our contemporary moment. Um, And I don't know if people have read about this, but of course it's a complete, it's completely mythological. There were, you know, Irish who were indentured servants. There were many things that were unjust about the system, but it's absolutely not comparable to chattel slavery.
4: Right. I think there's, it's important to recognize that, like, certainly. Many Irish immigrants were oppressed coming to America. Northern laborers were absolutely oppressed people. But I don't think it's necessary for every victim of oppression to, like, have to compare themselves to slaves, to African chattel slaves. Like, well, at,
3: sorry, go not ahead. Yeah, 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 just that. It's like they chose to come here, generally. Like, that simple fucking fact alone, like... People were leaving, and I know there was a lot of shit, like, they could be considered refugees, but they still, there was, like, just the fucking fact that they were not taken from their home by force, oh my god, I don't know. Yeah, some, just
4: to, I don't really want anybody to jump on us on this, so I will say that there were certainly, especially children, who were kidnapped and, like, brought into indentured servitude in America, but again, like... That's terrible. Like, that's really, really shitty. But you also get your freedom after, like, seven years, and then your children aren't enslaved. So there's huge differences. Um, And everybody's, like, you know, in some way or another, kind of a victim of the system. And, like, capitalism, early capitalism, and, like, exploitative systems, even before real capitalism, forced people to come to America. Mm -hmm. Certainly. But again different situation than being put on a slave ship. Yeah, so.
1: I mean, context matters. These details matter. I mean, this makes me think of, you know, a lot of times when we talk about feminism, we talk about how, you know, sexism hurts men, too, in all of these different ways, but it's important to recognize that it, although sexism does hurt men, at the end of the day, um, it is it is men as a group that benefit from sexism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is women that are oppressed by it, and I think... Um, you know, maybe as a white person, a black person was mean to you, but at the end of the day, uh, racial differences are used to give white people supremacy. And I think we get into a lot of difficulties when we want to use concepts universally. Uh, and I think we see this a lot in liberalism. Uh, where, you know, any concept you have about the world has to apply universally. Like if you believe in freedom of speech, you have to believe in it for everyone, including Nazis. And I think it's really an oversimplification of logic and of reality. I think we can say that free speech
3: applies to some things and not to others. That's a little off topic. No, Sorry. It's, <laughs> no, it's always it's always good to bring up the quagmire of, of free speech. I love it. <laughs> so I, I thought to kind of wrap up our part of quoting Marx specifically we could talk about this really weird weird quote that he has in Capital (laughs) and so we can just kind of like pull it apart because and note all you Marxists out there like mad love to Marx but like we're gonna tear this apart (laughs) Uh he says the greatest evil of the system that employs young girls on this sort of work consists in this that As a rule, it chains them fast from childhood for the whole of their afterlife to the most abandoned rabble. They become rough, foul-mouthed boys before nature has taught them that they are women. Clothed in a few dirty rags, their legs naked far above the knees, hair and face besmirched with dirt, they learn to treat all feelings of decency and shame with contempt. (laughs) Fuck Mm. yeah, sounds like a good time to me. (laughs)
1: It's
3: pretty fucked up.
2: That strikes me as like really paternalistic. And again, I'm not a fan of like biological determinism. I don't know the whole before nature has taught them how to be women. I don't know. I don't appreciate that. I don't appreciate like the double standards between women and men.
4: But this. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Love it.
2: Yeah, sorry to take a um, an unpopular. Stance here. <laughs> um, yeah, but it just it kind of reminded me of uh, Virginia Woolf's like killing of the woman or the angel in the house concept, um, and the angel in the house. If y'all aren't familiar, is um, it came from some poem, and honestly, I don't remember who wrote it, and I don't give a shit to look up, it up right now. Um, but it was this guy who thought that his wife was like the ideal woman. Um, she was self-sacrificing, um, she was nurturing on everybody else, she would apologize for things that, you know, she deserved an apology for. Just, I don't know, it seemed so deeply, like, self-neglectful, and that was praised by her husband, and Virginia Woolf kind of took offense to that, um, and said that, like, one of the best things that she ever did for herself was, you know, kill the angel in the house. It was to kill the idea that that is what she needed to be as a woman Um, and that provided her with a lot of inner peace and um, helped her become successful in her career as a writer you know to to treat herself as not someone who has to be proper all the time and not having to neglect her own feelings and obviously in this case like (laughs) the exploitation of children is awful um but It bothers me a lot that the greatest loss, as far as Marx is concerned, is the sense of decency and shame in women. Um, When that's not something that I've appreciated internalizing at all. Like, that hasn't... decency and shame... (sighs) The worst. They have I mean, (laughs) to a degree, I guess they're good, like, if they keep you from fucking over other people. Mm -hmm. But I think that women are expected to internalize them in ways that fuck themselves over... Um, And I think that losing, you know, losing that degree of, quote, decency and shame is not a bad thing. Yeah. So (laughs) that's my takeaway.
3: Yeah. It's just all sorts of fucked up. And it like especially when like the capitalist class specifically used the language of women being decent and women being pious and women being demure or whatever like Mm -hmm. for the purpose of serving men and like Marx again as callum was saying is like a well-read person (laughs) so like i mean and like obviously there's context to this too i don't know like it's kind of like i don't know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna defend Marx on this but (laughs) so i'm just gonna not do that yeah i
2: just (laughs) The worst part of exploitation of workers is not that they are less palatable
3: to us Less men.
4: ladylike yeah, for like, being exploited. There are worse things about exploitation, I promise. Yeah. And he mm. knows that. Like, he knows that when he's talking about men. Mm-hmm. This is just, a, like, a pretty incredible blind spot of his. Yeah. And it's important, I mean, like, it's important to point this stuff out because, you know, I think there are still some people out there who think that Marx is sort of the end-all be-all of socialism and socialist thought and stuff. And obviously he's incredibly helpful for thinking through so many things, but there are glaring blind spots. Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, the left continues to echo many of those blind spots.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, Shade thrown, As
4: as Pablo Picasso said, and as this
2: honestly, well, yeah, he didn't... Speak English primarily, so this is definitely. About um, but about his like membership in the Communist Party, he said, "I've joined a family, and like all families, it's full of shit." Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to give Marx any credit for this passage, I guess um, you know if you compare how upper class women lived with how uh, women that had to work lived. Of course, there are many. Differences in the type of relaxing uh, lifestyles they get to enjoy. And there are certain joys to things that we classically categorize as feminine. Um, And I think some women probably were not lucky enough to get to enjoy the best parts of being a woman. Um, Maybe the only highlights of being a woman. Uh, I think overall the statement is still bullshit. But um, if I was trying to give him any credit at all uh, and be generous, I guess that's what I'd give him.
3: Proud of you. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, yeah, okay, jumping in on this though, like the the idea of womanhood that he's idealizing here is a distinctly bourgeois womanhood. You know, yes. like that's just inherently backwards. Another reason that this is like one of the sort of weakest points, the most under theorized points in his writings, I think. Because I mean that's just it's so obvious. Um, but he he couldn't see that, evidently, here.
1: Well, but also to push back a little bit on the, the bourgeois femininity thing, um, although I do think that's true, I think it's because it's bourgeois women who are allowed to enjoy that kind of femininity. Um, you know, there was also at, the t- at this same time, or maybe a little bit later, there was a lot of men exploring the idea of androgyny. And by that, it meant that they got to enjoy beauty. So when you think about, you know, the, the much celebrated phrase, you know, The women deserve bread, but they deserve roses too. They deserve everything that bourgeois women get to enjoy. Uh, I think there's also a sense that these are things that maybe all women deserve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't like I don't like the idea that that also means we get pigeonholed into what femininity is supposed to be. But I think as we open up what femininity is, uh, and more people come to enjoy it, including men. I don't know. I think ideally
4: that's true, but in this in this circumstance, like. The that it's a a problem that distinct problem that girls are besmeared with dirt, um for example like being besmeared with dirt is a sign of poverty that affects you know like boys as well but that it's like a distinct problem for little girls um for little girls who speak roughly you know that aren't don't know how to how to be demure and decent all of that I think is is not. Like it doesn't strike me as being a universal femininity that Marx is celebrating here. Um, I think that that, I mean, ideally, that's what we might aspire to. But I, I don't know. I don't want to give. I don't think it's. I don't want to give Marx that much credit here. Um.
1: Agreed. I was only giving him a little. <laughs> uh, he definitely gets yeah, credit in other areas, but <laughs> yeah,
2: not
3: <mostly. laughs> you know. Maybe as like... a child
1: who enjoyed having my face be smeared with dirt and playing with bugs, you know. Hell yeah! I agree. Yeah.
3: Well, this is a, a good time for us to take a little break. I wanted to give a shout out um, to some amazing women musicians, uh, Kathleen Hanna, Laura Stevenson, Katie Crutchfield and Sadie Dupuy, who are pretty famous uh, women musicians and like answered our call uh, on the Twitter to have their music shared on here and so if you feel so inclined to you know reach out to your favorite woman musician even if they're pretty famous maybe they'd be into sharing their music on here
4: while we go down
3: a little intro to Sylvia Federici in our first episode. But she has a lot of really amazing insight to what it means to read feminism from a Marxist perspective. One of the main arguments she makes is how women have been the producers and reproducers of the most essential capital commodity, which is labor power. And when I was like reading this, I was getting super fired up. And I was like, if we're to look at it this way, Women control, well, not actually because we don't have the power, but we technically control the entire future of labor power. So everyone hold on to your ovaries because it's going to be a bumpy ride and there is now a moratorium on ladies having babies until the revolution. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just saying, like, from the perspective of, you know, she she makes a pretty critical claim that Marx never – Imagined that women could uh, refuse to reproduce as part of the class struggle, and like that agency that we actually have is is one of the most possibly show-stopping class struggle maneuver. Right, we Kellen, could pull. has something mm-hmm. to add?
4: I didn't want. I didn't know if anybody wanted to jump in there. Yeah. Well, I think this would be like a good point to to. Sort of think critically about trans women and where they fit into this question of reproduction. Because, you know, we're talking now about the literal reproduction, ovaries, et cetera, uh, And obviously not all women right,
1: and also, have ovaries. You know, some men can have children.
4: Right. So one of the reasons that I think that our system is so threatened by trans- transgender folks or non-binary folks or gay folks is that they threaten the system at its very foundation, the foundation that Laura was just talking about. As she said, all of labor power essentially springs forth from the womb. So if you're even if you're a cis lady... But you're a cisgender lady who wants to get it on with other ladies, you're not putting your womb to use. So of course, lesbian (laughs) relationships. (laughs) Of course, lesbian (laughs) relationships are attacked in the same way that, you know, men who uh, have sex with other men, even if we're just talking about cisgender people here, that's threatening because men are subverting both gender expectations and also the very basic expectation that they will impregnate women, impregnate women uh, to produce, again, more labor power. Um, but if we're talking about transgender people, there are even more layers of you know, quote unquote, transgression. Um, sort of different another level of subversion. Of what it means to be a man or a woman by traditional standards. The more that transgender people are accepted as having the gender that they claim, the more rigid the system that says, or sorry, the more the rigid system that says people with ovaries are primarily baby makers falls apart. If we can be genderqueer or non binary, meaning we don't even claim, you know, womanhood or manhood, um, but Renounce them both, or accept parts of, accept parts of both. As we reject the idea that we have to be labeled men or women, that's even more dangerous because again, it's undermining the idea that women are people with ovaries who have a very specific job in society, and that is literal reproduction. Um, and so. All of this, I think, is really important to keep in mind when we're discussing feminism, especially Marxist feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's why I think that feminism that rejects transgender people as valid or doesn't take their concerns into consideration is a bankrupt feminism.
3: Well, yeah, for Mm -hmm. fucking sure. And I I think similarly to what, you know, Ambria had said earlier about, like, sexism affects men and women, but there's a power structure there. I think in terms of, like, overthrowing capitalism... The more intersectional we can be and the more we're fracturing the system and standing up for trans rights, like all of those intersectional rights, it's fracturing the capitalist system. It's fracturing the status quo in like this hierarchical society that we live in. And every time that we do that, it's like a positive thing.
4: Right. But doing it with like intensity and purpose and not like we need more transgender guards at for-profit prisons like yeah you know because that's just <laughs> no. another that's another you can see that coming on the horizon is the way that corporate feminism co-ops transgender well, and people I think,
1: and i know. think you know i've talked to uh, a lot of cis women who feel that trans women don't uh, understand sexism or they haven't really experienced it but i think in reality mm. you see if we look at like Um, How much violence trans women are subjected to, especially um, when you think Mm -hmm. about all the narratives around the fear of a trans woman uh, tricking you into having sex with her and things like that. I think um, what you see is a very extreme misogyny and sexism because it has to do with men's right to control what they think women should be, and what is an acceptable, what is yes. an acceptable woman. Absolutely. And I think when you see mm. liberal narratives, uh, where we get things like, oh, we just need more trans women guards and stuff like that. Um, I think what you're seeing too also is the narrative of the acceptable trans woman. Like, oh, a, a, a woman right, who yeah. um, is passing or, you know, beyond that is someone that cis men simply must admit is attractive enough for them to allow her to be considered a woman.
4: Yeah, mm. that's a good point, Andrea. I guess that's probably um,
2: a good place to throw in that piece from, it's also from the Rose Remix package, which we talked to, about in the first episode. Um, but this is an article by Nancy Holmstrom. And it also discusses, you know, reproductive freedom of women. Nancy Holmstrom is a, uh, she's a writer at Jacobin. She is um, a professor at Rutgers University. um, And she wrote this article. Let's see. I have it pulled up in front of me. Um, It's Rosa Luxemburg, A Legacy for Feminists. But she says that, like, one of the major distinctions between socialist feminism and liberal feminism is, well, abortion rights are, you know, they're very important to both forms of feminism to hopefully all forms of feminism, although I think that there are some feminists who don't think that it's not only don't think that it's necessary, but also don't think that it's moral. Regardless, abortion rights are generally accepted as uh, a priority in a feminist movement because reproductive control is really important for self-determination. But the difference between socialist feminism and liberal feminism is that Socialist feminism also recognizes that there are more factors at play in reproductive control, Mm -hmm. such as access to birth control, access to medical care, um, access to child care, and um, a living wage, um, an equal wage. Because if you can't decide, you know, that you don't want to get pregnant and take measures to avoid it, then you don't have reproductive control. If you can't afford you know, abstract obstetric services, you can't afford to give birth. Um, if you can't afford childcare and you don't have a living wage, yeah, then you're kind of SOL. Like, you don't really have options for I mean, working is going to be a problem, because you know, you need money to live, but you can't afford yeah. childcare, And you can't afford child care, because you don't have a good job. So it's I don't know, it's just a vicious cycle. And You know, socialism addresses all of those, you know. um, Right. And they're all very, very integral in actually having reproductive control beyond just having access to abortion. So I think that um, there's, I don't know, I have some issues with a single issue feminism in that, like, abortion is the reproductive issue that feminists tend to hang their hats on when in a lot of feminist traditions, they don't look beyond those single issues and see the problems that, both cause and result from that single issue, so just yeah, wanted to make that point.
4: <laughs> no, I think that's really good. And one of one of the things that you said like really got me thinking because you know we hear a lot about like equal pay being like a central feminist issue, and obviously it's important, you know. But if you are a cafeteria worker as a woman and you're getting equal pay to the men who work in the cafeteria with you but none of you guys have a living wage then that's not enough you know Mm -hmm. like equal pay for everybody doesn't go as far as I think some women think that it does you know if you're not thinking all the way through if you're if your feminism is you know a corporate liberal feminism that is from the perspective of a white bourgeois Lady, then abortion rights and equal pay. Maybe you don't need to go past that because for right. you that's enough. But I think as y'all were saying earlier too, um, for us to have like an all-encompassing feminism, a feminism that takes into account the people who are at like the axes of oppression in our society. You know, and that would probably be trans women of color. You know, that demands more from us. And mm-hmm. demands that we take a much broader look at society. And I think that's that's where, like as Lindsay was saying, like socialist feminism becomes such an obviously superior, obviously perspective. superior, mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think this is a good um, segue into um, the socialist feminist writer Joanna Brenner, and people are often aware of the feminist economist argument that women have two shifts. One with wages, um, that's their like 9 to 5 job or whatever, um, and one as caretakers in their home. Mm-hmm. However, many more feminist scholars, including Joanna Brenner, have brought to attention a third shift, the societal and community builder. Women often carry the burden of shouldering the societal labor that comes from creating a cohesive or at least somewhat cohesive community. Um, and Joanna Brenner calls this social reproduction. She says that when Marx is talking about collective labor, he was mainly thinking about the production of goods. And Marxist feminists argue that this extends into how socially necessary labor is organized and how society is organized on an everyday basis. And women weren't just like, y'all, yeah, I'll do this. They were like, okay, we've been assigned the responsibility of this work through the division of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily a choice, but it is a need that that women have often take on, taken on in society.
2: Yeah, I think there's an old saying that goes, um, a man may work from son to son, but woman's work is never done. Um, <laughs> and I think that a lot, just all the time. But yeah, I read this uh, Metafilter thread a while ago. I have no idea how I stumbled across it, but it's like a PDF in PDF form now, and it's like 70 pages long. <laughs> um, it's It's incredible, and it made me so mad reading it, and it was... <sighs> So resonant, but it's just a collection of a lot of women primarily talking about, you know, the reproductive um, and emotional and social labor that is so often unrecognized and how that lack of recognition and that lack of support in those roles, it's really divisive and it, it has harmed a lot of their relationships because there, are I mean, there are just so many different things that people don't consider to be, you know, things that take effort, like remembering people's birthdays or like. You Know planning and cooking meals, uh, cleaning in general, being emotionally and socially attentive in general. People tend to not think that those things are work unless they're the ones doing them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and they're things that society relies on. Like society needs people to maintain social relationships. Um, and those are, I mean, those are just some of the most basic examples of you know, social reproduction and reproductive labor and things like that. But it also expands to organizing because I know that, I mean, especially this group of women here, every single one of you is like, y'all put in so much work behind the scenes and it's incredible and it's so inspiring. And I've heard each and every one of you mention, like just how men have kind of taken the spotlight in situations in which you've put in work. And, um, (laughs) I have no and idea what ca-
3: you're talking about. <laughs> yeah.
2: Mm. And in those cases, it looks like the man did everything, but like, I mean, it wouldn't be possible without you, you know? Thank you.
3: So, <laughs> yes. And uh, another incredible feminist socialist author writes about this whole same thing in a, in a little bit of a different way, but Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, she's an American author, political activist she wrote nickeled and dimed and she went like deep undercover oh, yeah. and kind of was just a general badass she she was a prominent figure in the 80s and 90s for the democratic socialists of america so anyway there's so much we could talk about <laughs> with her but one thing i thought we could discuss is how is housewives and homemakers and how they fit into the class struggle one of barbara's critiques of what she calls quote, mechanically bent Marxists is that they do not necessarily consider housewives a member of the as members of the working class. I know for many of our feminist Marxist men listening to this show that this seems absurd. But for anyone who isn't a man, this is borderline abhorrent. In a similar vein to what Joanna was arguing, Barbara says that women would say, of course, housewives are members of the working class not because we have some kind of elaborate proof that they really do produce surplus value but because we understand a class as being composed of people and of having a social existence quite apart from the capitalist dominated realm of snap 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 sorry (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i just thought that it was so funny because it's like uh duh like and it's not even just that they're part of the working class, but it's that they're at the very heart of that class mm-hmm. um, and creating all these networks that we've been discussing.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I think, though, that it's important to recognize like the particular what the version of housewifery that we're talking about here. We're talking about like a laboring housewife, somebody who's actually doing the work of social reproduction. So laundry, cleaning, food prep, mm-hmm. child rearing, that kind of stuff, because many bourgeois women outsource this labor to domestic workers. Mm-hmm. So while they may have the title of housewife, they're not doing the kind of laboring that we're actually talking about here. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that thinking about domestic labor in this broader context of Marx and feminism is really important because it gets, I mean, it gets complicated very quickly by both race and gender and that it's domestic work is generally when it, when it's outsourced outside of the home, it's generally done by women and frequently by women who have a minority status, especially who are racial minorities. And so when labor is coded, both in terms of gender and race, it's often doubly ignored uh, as being important or valuable. Mm. Um, And one of my favorite, I mean, not favorite in a good way, but um, (laughs) my favorite examples of the way that this, the way that we have ignored domestic labor in our history and the very real consequences that that's caused is in the new deal and social security, which is obviously like one of the major progressive victories of, you know, the 20th century. But One of the ways that FDR was able to get Social Security through the Congress and get Southern Democrats, the Democrats at that point were the majority party in the South, were the constructors, the people behind the Jim Crow laws, um, and, you know, were completely shutting black folks out of um, their uh, elections, like, you know, all the, the issues with voting rights, that was Southern Democrats, Democrats behind that. The Republican Party was virtually non-existent in the South. So to get Southern Democrats on board, FDR sort of made a deal. And the deal was that only certain kinds of wage labor would be included in Social Security and excluded from Social Security would be farmers, whether or not you you own the lands, um or sorry, if you didn't own the land you were working, especially this is uh, the case because you have the majority of black men in the South at the time are sharecroppers. So generally, farming land they themselves did not own. The other group that was excluded um, were, was domestic workers. And uh, that is basically the majority of black women who are not um, working in the fields, were working in white women's homes. And so the idea was that excluding these people from social security was a way to maintain whites economic control over black communities to make, make sure that black people were completely dependent on individual white economic actors who gave them jobs, not at all emancipated by the government, um, allowed any measure of economic freedom by the government. But one of the reasons that it was so easy to make that happen is because of the way that domestic labor was erased. And so not only did this hurt black women in the south and their families, but of course it also hurt a lot of working women in the north, many of whom tended to be recent immigrants and not necessarily people who leadership in the north was all that interested in helping. And so it's it's really easy for us to overlook this kind of labor and to further marginalize already marginalized communities in America.
3: Yeah. Shit's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> in summation. <laughs> I liked when you were like FDR made a deal with the in my mind, I was like, oh, that sneaky deal, that sneaky <laughs> part of the New Deal. It's like a meta deal within the New Deal. Yeah, yeah, I did not
1: know that about the New Deal,
3: so thank you for sharing. Yeah. Hell yeah. So the other feminist socialist who we were contemplating bringing in here was Rosa Luxemburg, obviously, but I feel like she's so, you know, she's just gargantuan in this whole conversation, so I think we're going to save that for another day, but a little (laughs) teaser put it out there, and I wanted to let (laughs) you all know that when I was thinking about this episode and us recording it, I was camping last night, and I was sitting around the fire, and I was like, oh my god, I have a brilliant idea, and so hopefully we can roll this out by either Christmas or New Year's or sometime around there, but um, I want to create a murder mystery game that is brought to you by season of the bitch. And it's called who killed Rosa Luxemburg, a murder mystery (laughs) party brought to you by season of the bitch. And so everyone would get like, you know what comes when you have, if you've ever done like a murder mystery party, you get character cards and you have different times where you can like flip your pamphlet to the next page and you gain more information and there's like a little audio track that's like, you just found out that blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like the public information and then you have secret information. Anyway, I want to come up with it and it's going to be dope as hell. And we're going to like sell it as a fundraiser or some Woo. shit. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> this is what this is just, m- happens uh, we got in my a, brain.
1: We got a P.O. box for Season of the Bitch and I think lawyers just trying to use it, which I fully support. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm all about using that, that P.O. box. PO box. Yeah, I think to wrap up our whole conversation, I just wanted to say that we're just a bunch of Bernie bros here talking about Marx, and I hope you liked it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I also want to
1: note, like, I'm super open to um, having, being engaged in conversations about Marx. Um, I think when we say that we don't want to have Marx mansplained to us, I think kind of what we mean is, you know, this stuff is super arguable, obviously, the interpretation yeah. of Marx yeah. is super arguable. That's why there's a whole fucking field dedicated to interpreting and trying to explain Marx that has existed since Marx published. Um, so I think as long as we come at it as something that's arguable, instead of coming at it as something that simply can be explained away, you know, it, that something that suggests that the interpretation of Marx is static and that you've figured it all out. If it's not like that, like I think we're totally down to engage.
4: Yeah, just like Absolutely.
3: don't be condescending.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. So As much. always,
1: if you are a non woman or many non women, and you have music to submit to us, please email us at
4: non woman, a non woman or many non Oh, Oops. <laughs> we don't want I any non man.
1: Sorry to Non-man. confuse everybody. Yes. We want non-men. Or many non-men. And if you have music to submit to us, please email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com, just the letter B. And then also you should follow us on Twitter and tweet at us. And if you're a guy, tweet us dishpicks at, uh, at b.
2: You can also send us uh, dishpics on our Instagram at SeasonofTheBe. And uh, while you're at it, just you know, subscribe to our Patreon, um, give us your money. Can I make
1: one note about the dish pics that I think is really funny that I've observed? So, in my mind, when we first said, hey, send us dish pics, I find that men did something that they also do with dick pics, which is like, I may, in the right circumstance, deign to look at a nude picture of a man, but I don't want to only see the dick, like, that's kind of ridiculous. But men also, and when I thought, hey, I would like to see dish pics, I thought of, you know, pictures of men washing dishes, yet all the pictures that men send are just racks of dishes. Similarly to how when men send dick
3: pics, it's just the dick. I love it. Also, what is hashtag FF? Follow Friday. Follow Friday. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. All love right, I love you, you guys. <laughs> i right. right. glad we could have this talk today. <laughs> Me too. Bye. <laughs> love you. Bye,
1: Bye. Oh Bye. guys. Bye. I love you.